Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Joseph Harris, professor of English at the University of Delaware. Dr. Harris, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Hi, it's great to talk with you. Now, this is a very special show, so if you'd, if you'd bear with me a second, I'd like to give a bit of a refresh to the audience. This is actually episode 100, and it also aligns with our two-year anniversary, and uh, Dr. Harris is actually the perfect guest to bring on for an episode 100 for a brief refresh of the show, the way this podcast started in, in February 2020. I was doing a lot of research. I was feeling very lonely. Uh, I literally felt lost in citations, um, separated from, there just seemed like names on, on papers, and, and I just kind of missed talking with people. And I was reading this paper about uh, the Yerkes Dotson Law, um, which is an interesting, I don't know, it's an interesting story in and of itself that is still cited in psychology to this day, even though it was an experiment in 1908. And there was a paper written in 1994, I think, by this professor, uh, Tegan. And I read it, and it just did a great job of summing up the century of, you know, wh where we were and, and where we're going. And it was such a great paper, I just said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to email this guy. And so I sent him an email, and I said, look, this is, this is the best paper. I've read 30 of the papers on this subject. Yours is by far the best. And he sent me this email back uh, right away or a couple hours later, and I got sort of this great rush. I said, oh, my gosh, you're this citation, but you're a person. And then, and then we, we were kind of corresponding back and forth, and, and I think it was his idea where he said, you know, it would be a really cool idea if you started a podcast where you actually talk to some of the writers of these uh, articles or books. And I said, hey, you know what? That's great. Would you like to be a guest? Would you like to be the first guest? And he said, no. Uh, but anyway, and so, so the, I, at first, oh, that, that's, that's not going to work. But then I thought about it and then, uh, reset and then we, we, we started off and we're going strong. And this book that we're going to talk about today, rewriting was introduced to me in 2020 in a writing workshop I was doing at Macquarie university. And at that time, and I, I, I had corresponded with uh, Dr. Harris uh, later, and at that time, I didn't read through the whole thing, but I was kind of given a course on it, and I was kind of taught the book. And I bought the book, but I didn't read it all the way through. And now it's the new year, and I got a lot of research products I got to do, and I, I got to get myself remotivated. So I started reading the book again, and I was on uh, page 57. Well, I started reading the book again, and I was on page 57. I said, like, oh my gosh, this book is incredible. And so I just did the same thing where I, uh, I got on the, got on the old internet and I thought, is this, can, can I find him? And then I, and I, I kind of tracked down your email. I sent you an email and, mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of similar to the very first, how, how the show started, where I read the book, I was struck by how good the book was and I thought it'd be really cool to talk to you. So, so thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Well, that, that's a wonderful story, Jonathan. Thank you. Um, and please call me Joe. Um, and I want to say that I think the idea for the podcast is a terrific one. It really speaks directly to my own experience. Uh, when I started out as a teacher and as an academic, and I don't know why this was the case, but whenever I, I read an essay or a book, I imagine the author as writing it with a fountain pen on an oak desk in a book line uh, study, probably sipping some sherry as they did so. <laughs> and it took me a long time to realize that 
they were people like me who were trying to get this work done in between running out for groceries and getting the kids to daycare and planning their classes for next week and so on. So um, realizing that you are truly a part of a community of other actual people was just a, a transformative moment for me. So uh, what, what a terrific idea for a series of interviews. Well, and I just want to kind of start with um, one of my favorite quotes from your book, and there are, are so many, so many great sentences. Actually, I listened to a previous interview, and you told a story about some feedback you got from the book, and one of your students, I hate to tell the story, you probably should tell it yourself, but I, I tend to do this. <laughs> I'm, I'm rewriting your story here. Um, you, your student said that, you know, in most of his classes, he could just read the beginning of a chapter and the end of the chapter and kind of got the gist, but he's kind of told you, uh, well, with this book, I got to read every sentence. And that is <laughs> yes. true. There are so many good sentences in this book, but one of my, one of my favorite ones is this. I've tried to offer a view of academic writing as a social practice, as a form of intellectual work that is always rooted in a set of ongoing conversations, and that is always looking to push such talk another step forward. Um, mm -hmm. I, I love, I love that. Uh, I, I just love the the take on that. And again, like you said, it kind of aligns with this podcast. I guess when you read the book um, without doing a podcast like this in some ways it can help you, but doing a podcast like this, it really kind of brings it forward where I can actually hear the voices of the people that I'm citing in my papers. Um, yes. And another thing that students have told me about the book that pleases me immensely is that uh, they tell me that they hear my voice in the prose, which is something that, that I strive for. Um, so the conversation that I mentioned in that sentence is a real conversation. Uh, and it took me, and another lesson that I needed to learn was the difference between a conversation and a debate or an argument, where in debate or argument, uh, the point is to win, to prove mm -hmm. your point, to show that the other side is wrong. The point of a conversation is actually to move things forward, and there's a collaborative aspect to it. So again, imagining that there's another person there who's written the text that uh, you're reading and responding to, I think is really useful in imagining a conversation rather than simply imagining some set of points which you are then going to you know, refute or show the problems with. Absolutely. Before we get into some discussion topics within the book, I'd like to hand over the floor to you in some ways, if you could share your background. I know a lot of listeners are really interested, again, with this book um, or with a lot of academic writing, we get we get a sense of an author, and, and you did share a little bit in this book about you, you talked about how you had a working class upbringing and, and your eyes sort of opened up when you went to college. But even if you'd like to go further back than that, if you'd like to, um, I just I just want to hand the floor over to you if you'd like to share your background, maybe take us through um, maybe all the way up to the the point where you started thinking about writing this book. Sure. That that could be a very long story indeed. Watch what you ask for. Go for it. Jackson, you may get it. People um, need content while they're washing dishes, like I mentioned before. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Well, as I've mentioned in many places before, I, I never expected to become an academic because when I was a small boy, I had no idea uh, what such people were. I uh, am the son of a truck driver, um, an Irish Catholic family in Philadelphia. My mother was a truck driver's wife and part-time secretary. Uh, neither my dad nor mom went to college. In fact, my dad didn't finish high school. And so the world that I am part of now was simply unknown to me. Mm. And it was a, a great bit of luck that I got introduced to it. Uh, part of it was in eighth grade uh, at St. Matthew School in, in Philadelphia, one of the nuns told me to go off and uh, take a test to see if I could get into uh, sort of the Catholic prep school uh, for the area with Sal High. And uh, I did, and I got in for what reason? I, I don't know why. I never thought of myself as an exceptional student, but I guess I tested well. Um, and going off to LaSalle uh, was a revelation to me. Uh, I had a number of just wonderful teachers, both lay teachers and, and Christian brothers, uh, all of whom were just really interested both in books and ideas, and also uh, it was an all-boys school, uh, the boys that they were teaching. And then I had yet another stroke of good luck, which was um, I had sort of assumed that I would go from LaSalle High to LaSalle College, uh, which is a Catholic university in the Philadelphia area. And again, for whatever reason, uh, was uh, good guidance counselors, that sort of thing, was encouraged to apply a little more widely. And I ended up going to a Quaker school just outside of Philadelphia, Haverford College, mm. uh, which is just a truly excellent liberal arts college. And although it was only a half an hour from my parents' home in Philadelphia, uh, it was an entirely different world to me. And in one way, that world um, was and is wonderful and one that uh, I identify with very strongly. And that is the world where ideas and books and movies and music are taken seriously and people want to lose themselves in citations and talking about them. Um, I also, at, at that point, encountered a different world in the sense that I was on Philadelphia's main line, uh, a very affluent community that was very different from mine. And to some degree, not completely, but to some degree, those worlds overlap, right? That there, there is um, uh, some conjunction between uh, uh, economic capital and, and cultural capital. Um, 
which I have always felt a little uneasy about. I always wanted to argue for the cultural capital side. Uh, and when I ended up, um, I'll skip over a few years here, but thought I was going to be a journalist, thought I was going to be a novelist, thought I was going to do bunches of things that never quite worked out, uh, but ended up uh, in graduate school in New York um, teaching first-year writing. And... Uh, working with a lot of students who seemed to me to be much like I was when I went off to college and encountering a new world. And I wanted to be an advocate for um, the part of that world that, that really excited me, which again was uh, the, the conversation of, of texts and, and ideas and, and people who were committed to them. Um, what else? That that's um, so probably then you're, an abstract biography. <laughs> so you're you're a graduate student in New York, and you're you're enjoying teaching the first year writing program. When did you decide to get a PhD? That's always the big question for me because that's such a huge decision, isn't it? It is, and. I guess the other thing I would say about my story was um, I'm not sure that I became a particularly good student, um, serious student, probably until I, I became an assistant professor. I felt like I was always in some ways sort of catching up. I was a clever student. Uh, you know, I could earn A's. I was smart, but, um, you know, I was basically doing school rather than uh, working on issues that really engaged me. Mm. And I actually think it was working with a set of mentors in it was the expository writing program at New York University. Um, I had originally gone there thinking that I, I wanted to study film and got a master's degree in, in, in film studies. But um, as, as much as I like uh, film, I, I wasn't enjoying that in particular. But I found that, again, that the work I was doing uh, with first-year writing students was really engaging and exciting for me. And there was a group of people in the English education department at New York University uh, that uh, were there to talk with and to give me books to read and to think about. And that's where I really started to be, um, you know, think, oh, okay, this is something that I might do. I think it took me a very long time to figure out how I wanted to do that. Um, and I'm not even sure <laughs> if I had figured that out in the time that it took to, to write the dissertation. I did that somehow, uh, managed to glean an article or two from it. But What um, was your dissertation topic? Uh, my dissertation was called... A Silent Voice, and Absent Ear, The Role of the Reader in Theories of Composing. And this was in the mid-1980s. It was during the heyday uh, of what in literary studies is known as reader response theory, uh, where uh, professors of literature were actually trying to shift their focus from literary texts 
to what readers did with those literary texts. And I thought that was uh, really an interesting and important move. And it made me think about, okay, so if you could shift to the activity of reading, what would that tell us about the activity of writing? So I, I was trying to make a connection between uh, fairly abstruse literary theories and uh, pretty practical problems in teaching young people how to, how to write for their university courses. Um, and you know, had had a couple of insights along the way. <laughs> um, uh, nothing earth shaking, uh, but uh, managed to get a job from there. I, I went to the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, actually, an other great stroke of, of good luck, and maybe that's. Um, See, I I always push back against that. You're uh, I if you don't mind. Sure. Um, not to argue or debate, but uh, <laughs> to push this conversation forward. Uh, I push back against that notion. Uh, I, I actually think that's a, a dangerous notion for successful people to pass down to other people. And I don't know mm. if that, and I, and I brought this up on the podcast before, I think it was a professor, uh, Todd Allen, who um, he was a gymnast uh, and he talked a lot about the, uh, his story along the way, another stroke of good luck, another stroke of good luck. And I push back on it because I, I think that successful people, um, you know, end up finding opportunities and, 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 and end up running into people, whether that was going to be the stroke of good luck or there was a quote unquote, or there's a stroke of good luck, quote unquote, later on down the road. Um, right. I think successful people end up finding their own opportunities. So I actually don't like when I hear successful people say it was a stroke of good luck. Kind of rubs well, me the wrong way. <laughs> Good pushback, Jonathan. But but here, here's how I will push back to your pushback, which is what what I think I would insist upon is the sense um, that I, I did not have a master plan. Right? There wasn't this sense of okay, I will you know do this sort of work, go to this sort of school, make this kind of move, connect with these people. Um, I you know there there was a sense of seeing okay, how are things going to evolve? Um, and I do think um, what what I value. What I'm describing as good luck uh, was to be in the company of, of people who took me seriously. And I've seen a kind of mentoring in the academy that, uh, to my eyes, has a kind of careerist mentality. It's about you know, where you should publish and when and who you should cite and, you know, what, uh, uh, how you're going to get tenure or not get tenure or whatever. Mm. And uh, I, I do think that I've had the good luck, I'll insist on that, of, from high school on, um, of having as mentors and friends people who were interested in uh, a good life as well as a good career. Well, and that and that definitely, f from my perspective, shaped a lot of the narrative within the book, which which we'll get to. Um, all right, so you're you're at the University of Pittsburgh, and then yes. 
uh, looking at your bio, you also were at uh, Duke University, and now you're at the University of Delaware. So I guess just for the timeline, the first edition was written in 2006 or seven, right? When I was at Duke, yes. At Duke, okay. And then you have a second edition that was published in 2017. So um, how long did you stay at Pittsburgh, and then what, what brought you to Duke? I was at Pitt from 1988 to 99, and one thing that, that uh, I might have caused over, and I'm not sure you can tell me whether your listeners uh, would be familiar with this or not, but um, in the U.S. particularly, uh, they're part of kind of the project of public education at the university level has been uh, the development of this first-year course in academic writing uh, at almost every university in the U.S., which is a course that still doesn't exist in many universities outside of the U.S. And I think uh, the reason why it does is this sort of democratic aspiration uh, in American higher education, right, that uh, we will... um, that we want to have higher education open to uh, people from a wide range of backgrounds and and schools. But to do that, there has to be a kind of um, leveling of the playing field and a moment of of access where some of the rules of the game are explained. And so it's that first-year writing course that um, I've spent much of my career either teaching or helping other people teach. And when I went to Pittsburgh, um, I joined a faculty that was had a long tradition of thinking uh, very hard and imaginatively about that course, which is not always the case, because uh, the other thing about American higher education is you've got this giant uh first-year comp course that everybody has to take and which a lot of faculty and administrators then tended to want to simply slough off onto whoever they could get to teach it cheaply, graduate Mm. students, adjunct instructors, etc. So often it was a course that people had not given a lot of thought to. my good luck <laughs> return to that at Pittsburgh was that I joined a faculty that that really had thought very seriously about it, and in that way was able, I think, to continue uh, my graduate education and and thinking there. So I ended up uh, trying to make what's turning into a very long story a little bit shorter. That's okay. Um, rewriting did uh, come out in two thousand and six when I had moved to Duke, but I would say that many of the ideas, it was strongly influenced by the the work that I had done at Pittsburgh. Um, And then um, when I moved to Delaware, which frankly was largely for personal reasons, as you know. Delaware's a great place, by the way. (laughs) I've I've only been there a couple times, but it's, it's just kind of under the radar. Yes, I, I think of it as kind of like the Luxembourg of you know, the U.S. Everybody knows it's a small place that exists somewhere, but nobody's quite sure why uh, or where. Um, but 
it actually exists quite close to uh, my family in Philadelphia and in Pittsburgh. And uh, while I really enjoyed my job at Duke, I, I really wanted to move uh, at that point in my life. Uh, my wife and I wanted to move back closer uh, to those folks. And so uh, I joined, um, uh, I think, a pretty vibrant uh, English department at the University of Delaware. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think that the set of concerns that I had uh, from Pittsburgh to Duke to Delaware remained uh, quite consistent. I was actually in all three places working with that first year writing course and with the other, uh, with new teachers uh, learning how to teach it. And I didn't feel as though I had to shift the kind of scholarly writing uh, that I was doing as I moved from one place to the other. I do want to, again, I want to get into the book, but maybe I'm jumping ahead here. Um, mm -hmm. In the chapter in the second edition, revising, I don't think that was in the first edition, right? No, revising was in, in that. It's remixing. That's remixing. the new chapter in the second one. Yeah. Sorry. So in revising, you actually include a couple of essays from your time at Duke, um, mm -hmm. one from your student, Justin, who mm -hmm. talked about the, that, the word sketchy, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I thought was interesting. And another one uh, was an undergraduate uh, named Emily. Um, mm -hmm. I have to say that was one of my favorite parts of the book. Um, I, I just kind of want to read the last part. I guess uh, just to set the context... She's writing a paper where I guess she's she's thinking about the idea of cultural capital, which you mm -hmm. actually mentioned previously. Mm -hmm. And she's talking about how she spent some time, uh, I guess, being homeless just to, I don't know, try to empathize or it was, it was kind of a complicated mm -hmm. topic, right? And she ends with saying, um, I guess she was obsessing about whether to turn it in, and her roommate said, you're obsessing, M. turn it in. At this point, I do like this draft. However, I also know that I will probably write a slightly different draft after my experiences student teaching this summer. This paper will follow me, hopefully expanding and altering through time. It will be interesting to compare drafts. My roommate knows me well. I do obsess. Mm -hmm. Um and I guess the point was you're, you were making, you said, Emily eloquently describes her essay here as following her, its shape and ideas shifting as she herself changes as a person and writer, which kind of brings me back to your other point about when you said that, oh, I, I didn't really become a good student until I became a professor. So I'm, I'm sort of late to the party as well. I'm on my early 40s and I'm just starting my PhD and I wouldn't have it any other way. I don't think I really learned how to think or started to learn how to think until recently. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess that's a multi-tiered topic I just brought up. I, anyway, that's that's a, that's a student you had from Duke. Um, mm -hmm. Why why did you choose that to put in the book? And it's kind of interesting because it's it seems like you you related to some of the things she was saying. Uh, for sure, I remember Emily very well. Um, and I, I thought it was a wonderful essay, <laughs> first of all. Why, why include it as part of the book? Well, like many of the professional essays that I include in the, the book, I admired it. Um, and I, I thought it, um, uh, Emily had things to say that, that I learned from. And 
uh, actually in the field that I'm in, in the U.S., in, in composition and rhetoric, uh, people much more than in other fields do tend to quote from the work of students or uh, community people or workers, ordinary people, uh, get into our research uh, more often than, than certainly uh, into the research of literary scholars. Um, but... I think it's important that when we cite such people, um, that it, they're, they're not reduced to just uh, being uh, data, uh, that, that we actually respond to what they have to say in a similar way that we respond to the work of other, you know, sort of more um, certified intellectuals. And uh, what... I was so struck by in Emily's piece was the way that she talked about a project that she had as a thinker and a writer that extended beyond any particular draft of any particular essay, that there was a set of issues and concerns that she was working on and that the paper that she was handing in to me at this point was what she could say about it at that time, but that she was going to move on and have more things to say, not necessarily in the sense of moving towards some kind of ideal form of that particular essay that she was writing, but just that this was something that uh, a set of issues that had gripped her and that she was going to continue to work on. And I think that's a, a lovely imagining of what it means to have a project as a writer, right? Not just a thesis to prove or an argument to make or, um, you know, a certain bit of uh, a research study to report on, but um, a set of questions and problems and concerns that are what you do, what you return to in one piece after the other and in one version of a piece after the other. Yeah, and you, you make the point in the book about how a lot of people don't know when to end a piece of writing Mm -hmm. Or they haven't thought through it enough where, you know, this idea that, and I think that's why the, the, the struck home with Emily, the, the point is, you know, you don't, you don't want to just end with something you already said. Mm -hmm. you, you want to keep on pushing it, pushing it to the end. And she did it. She even sort of implied that I'm going to con continue thinking about this for the, you know, the ending of her, her essay was not the end, right? That was kind right. of the, the point, which is something right. that's very hard, I would say, in my own writing as well. It's like you have to – it's that balance, right? The conclusion, right? Like what, mm -hmm. what do you say? You already said it. Um, I mean there's so many things in the book, but that, that's that's one of the things that kind of struck me that – I guess when you finish reading this book, you kind of need to – I don't even think this book is about writing. I think this book is about thinking. <laughs> <laughs> You're a flatterer, Jonathan. Yes, I, I, I do think it's not about writing in the sense of honing a technical craft, although I am interested in, you know, how to help people uh, refine their ability to write clear and interesting prose. And I work hard on my own. Uh, but clearly, the interest of writing goes 
far beyond that, right? It's um, uh, as a mode of, of thinking and of inquiry. And I think that was shown really nicely in Emily's essay. Okay, so you started writing this book in the early 2000s? Um, sort of. Uh, it's funny, I actually just um, wrote a, an essay for another collection um, where I went back and sort of um, uh, reviewed the history of writing it. And I, I wrote the proposal for the book in my last year at Pitt. So it was like 98, 99 that I actually proposed the book. And then I shifted jobs. And I don't know if this is a advice or just a cautionary tale, but um, I, when I proposed the book in, let's say, 99, I said I'd have a full draft in three years. Uh, moving to a new job and doing other things, 2002, 2003 came by, and I not only didn't have a full draft, I didn't have much more than the proposal at that point. I, I just had to be doing other things. Uh, but as I was doing them, and as I was teaching at Duke, even if I wasn't uh, creating drafts of the book, I was working on the book. I was thinking about it all the time as I was thinking about uh, the work I was doing with undergraduate writers. And so, See, that's, if I can jump in real quick, yeah. I feel like that's the next book that you should write or someone else should write, <laughs> the, the, the thinking. I, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know if it's, maybe it's a dumb idea, but um, because there is, there's so much about writing that isn't about sitting down and actually putting your fingers. Like you need time to think. Mm -hmm. um, and no one seems to talk about that so much. I mean, uh, there's books about, yes. you know, how to write a lot, you know, sit down, you know, have the schedule. I, I get that. Yeah. At some point you do need to pound it out, but there's also that the point you need to take time to, you need to take time to think about what you want to do. Right. So the, the, what you just said, that was, that's important. You were, you were thinking about it, right. Thinking about it a lot. Right. Um, and uh, I, I guess I, I agree with you completely. On the one hand, you don't want to lose fact of the sight that um, any meaningful work has its moments of drudgery and you just have to get it done. And there's certainly, you know, to be part of, to be a researcher or a writer, you have to be able to teach yourself to you know, sit down at the desk and uh, get work done. But you also have to, you know, have a sense of direction and know what, what the work is uh, that you want to do. And it, actually, after I wrote that proposal, um, I had a, you know, a good proposal for a book, but I really wasn't exactly sure how I wanted to develop develop it or elaborate on the ideas that I had proposed. And it took a certain amount of time of thrashing that out in conversation with other people, uh, often with undergraduates, but sometimes with my colleagues, um, and reading some more, uh, walking my dogs and thinking about what I wanted to write as, as uh, we were walking through the woods together. And then, you know, sort of 
there was the moment where, uh, and I would also say that this moment aligned with uh, a, a sabbatical research leave for a semester. Uh, I actually ended up teaching, uh, writing most of the book um, in a summer and fall, basically about May through December. And I'm not going to be able to tell you the right year. Uh, where did you I go? Did, did you did you go somewhere or you stayed at home? No. I, I, uh, my wife uh, works but is not an academic. I had a kid in high school, a daughter in high school at that time. I just went to my study and worked on it. But at that moment, I was in a position to write. And um, I'm not sure how to turn this into a useful lesson, but um, as difficult as it was in a way, I think the three years of not writing before that were important to that moment. Uh, you know, I, I, I really needed that time to, to work through what it was I wanted to say. And uh, once I had done that kind of incubating, uh, the actual writing of sentences and paragraphs uh, moved reasonably quickly. All right. Well, let's get into the book. Um, and I, I watched a previous interview of yours, and I think the the interviewer said that there's like a book within a book, and and mm. I would I would uh, add to that. There's a book within a book within a book within a book. <laughs> um, so I mean, the I don't know if it's catchy is the right word, but you know, when I was introduced to this book in a writing workshop at Macquarie University, actually, the teacher who ran that workshop. Uh, I interviewed on the show, if people want to go back and listen, uh, Citation 15, she had a set of slides and she went through, you know, the essential, you know, the, I don't know, the bones of the book, which are these moves mm. that you mm -hmm. um, introduce, uh, coming to terms, forwarding, countering, taking an approach. And the, so that was the structure of her presentation, mm -hmm. how she taught the book. And then within within that presentation, she also pointed out a couple of things that really stuck with her. Um, so, for example, on the back of her wall, she had this she had this sign that said "So what," and that was in your book, right? Yes. So that was that really struck her, and she always had this sign so she could look at you know so well so what you know so she thought about that all the time. She also brought up the the thing about you know let's say you have you know a thesis with I don't know hundreds of paragraphs every paragraph you should be able to condense down to one sentence. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, she, she had, like I, like I told you in our correspondence, um, I thought I had the nuts and bolts of the book, and I didn't read it. And then I went back and read it, and um, it's very layered. And so I guess, you know, you, you, you have the moves, which you talk about. Um, you have this uh, thing you call intertexts, which are in the citations. Mm -hmm. um, and then you also have projects, for, for teachers. But the thing that I liked most about the book is you kind of practice what you teach, uh, practice what you preach. I mean, you, so you'll give us the move or you'll, you'll talk about it. You'll reference someone else mm -hmm. kind of doing it in a way that you respect, and then you'll do it. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you'll actually show us, um, you know, just to hammer it home. And that was actually my favorite part of the book. I mean, is that is that is that how you kind of decided about how you wanted to structure the book? Um, yes, and I'm I'm delighted to hear you describe your experience reading the book that way. Um, I, I do try to 
not simply state but enact an argument to to perform it so that uh, yes, hopefully people will be reading a paragraph and saying, "Oh, that is how you would do this thing that he's talking about." And um, there there are a number of reasons for trying to to write in that mode. One is that I find it sort of aesthetically satisfying to do so. I'm not um, a creative writer, uh, but I think uh, academic writing is a mode of self-expression for me in many ways. Um, And I like trying to imbue um, my sentences and paragraphs with with my voice as much as I, I can. Uh, so that's part of it. The other part, though, is um, trying to think of how to to put this uh, usefully and concretely. I, I, I think there are certain sort of activities that are easy enough to describe, but actually very, very hard to do well. Mm. And if you've ever tried to, you know, just learn how to play tennis or you know a a musical instrument uh or something you know a a craft of practice uh you need to get a sense of i think texture and rhythm you know watch somebody actually doing it as well as to be told what the key moves are and so if you read rewriting in some uh and this is because Uh, My editors and reviewers told me that uh, this was needed. In some ways, the very first introductory chapter uh, goes through and in in more or less paragraph form explains what each of the rewriting moves are and why they're important. And bang, you know, if all, all you're looking for is the idea, you're basically done at that moment. So, you know, the question then is, What's the rest of the book for? And I, uh, I think the rest of the book is for kind of living and working through those ideas. And that's what uh, most good books do, I think, right? That they offer not simply a kind of thesis, but a sort of experience or, or, or working through of an idea. Do, do you... Um... Do you like Bukowski? Sure. Well, I, <laughs> I, I'm a little not sure where we're going with this, but yes, of course. I mean, I I got a sense of some Bukowski in this book in the fact that there's so many references of you taught you reference Plato, you reference Aristotle, you reference mm-hmm. the Beatles, you reference, you know, pop culture, you know, in, in books and and you you reference, you know, people I've never heard of, right? Um, mm-hmm. So you also group things together sometimes where you say, if you're making an argument about this, 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 or whatever, right? Um, which it, I guess it kind of goes back to what you said about, you know, your working class upbringing. It's, it doesn't seem so highfalutin um, mm. to me where some of these writing books, um, there's, there's a particular book, I'm not going to say the name of it, but the title is, it seems, you know, very accessible. 
And that's the mm-hmm. reason why I bought it. And I read it and I, I couldn't, I, like, I, I don't know what's going on here. This is the exact opposite of the title. And mm-hmm. I didn't like it at all because it didn't seem like it, it could connect with people. So I guess the, 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 where I'm going is you obviously have read so much. How did you settle on which essays to choose? I know, I guess a follow-up question is, I, I think in the book you talk about how you were an editor for a set of essays. So I'm, I'm guessing the essays about pop culture and about the commercials, I, I'm guessing mm-hmm. you got from that. But, you know, you referenced Stephen King, um, mm-hmm. Bruce Springsteen. So how did you yeah. – How did you? I guess you've been – like you said, you've been thinking about it for three years. But how did you end up actually narrowing down the intertexts? Well, as a – young man growing up in Philadelphia and New Jersey in the 1970s. How could I not <laughs> reference Bruce Springsteen? <laughs> right. He, he is the boss, but uh, he's a category to himself. Um, so where did... Uh, I, I remember speaking with a friend who had read the book in manuscript, and this is going back to 2005, 2006, and uh, we were talking about the text that I, I use as examples and the references I make, and uh, I think I, you know, raised some sort of question about, are these the right ones, or, you know, should I, you know, try to look for different sorts of references, etc.? And my friend said to me, well, you're also writing a kind of autobiography here, which I hadn't, and I hadn't thought of it that way, but the remark has stuck to me. I mean, what he was saying was that these citations largely come from, from me, from my reading, from the things that had, for one reason or another, over you know, 20 years of, of reading and thinking about uh, these issues had stuck with me, not in an organized way, not I'm going to write a book called Rewriting How to Do Things with Text, but when I decided to sit down and draft that book, that these were uh, the texts that were on the desk in my mind, basically, that that had uh, stuck with me, and so were available. I mean, there there were many times as I was um, drafting the book. Um, I can remember this uh, in particular with a Barbara Ehrenreich quote, where I I knew sort of where it was in the book, and I could even picture the paragraph as being sort of on the uh, upper right hand side of the the page as you would open the book, and I just sort of had to flip through and until I saw it because it these references came from my own experiences as a reader and a writer, and that was what I was offering rather than a more abstract set of principles. Yeah, I don't know if ever I've ever seen a book on academic writing that references um, Freud and Tupac Shakur in the same book. So, good on you for that one. Uh, what, what, let's let's touch. Uh, we have to wrap this up pretty soon, but let's let's touch on the, this. Uh, you said you were an editor for a collection of essays on pop culture. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, actually, my friend and I, Jay Rosen, uh, edited a collection called Media Journal, which was uh, we collected a set of essays and created a set of assignments to help people write about uh, their experiences with uh, popular culture. This was uh, there were two editions of the book, I think maybe uh, I can't remember now, 95 and late 90s and early 2000s, uh, right before the internet actually uh, became the dominant uh, force uh, in uh, all of our, our lives. But we were very interested in creating a book that um, a, a lot of popular culture, cultural criticism basically takes the attitude um, the media is trying to manipulate you, and we are going to teach you how to resist it so you're not a dupe and a pawn of mm-hmm. um, corporate forces. Mm-hmm. And there's some strength to that point of view. Sure. Uh, but we also wanted to uh, help people write about the positive pleasures and meanings that they they took from the media as well, without losing a sense of, of skepticism and criticism. So we tried to model uh, people who did that. Um, it was a fun book. Uh, I mean, I think it's actually now a little lost to time because when I look at it, um, it seems like the, the digital world has kind of created a, a different version of popular culture. So it seems a little dated to me that way. But very much in terms of teaching, uh, very similar aims as, um, as to rewriting. Um, all right, just a couple more things. Uh, another thing I really liked about the book is the story you talked about, uh, well, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, when he found out that his uh, sections of his article, was it for the New Yorker, was plagiarized or, or used yeah. in, um, can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, uh, this is in the remixing chapter. Um, I'm not sure that I can offer you the citation for the Gladwell piece, but um, what happened was that he wrote a profile of a uh, killer uh, uh, and Uh, a psychologist who who studied him and his uh, a lot of that profile ended up part of a play which I haven't seen I have to say uh, or read um, that had a fairly successful run um, in New York and friends evidently called up Malcolm and said hey you've just been ripped off. Somebody has stolen your work and made it part of their play. And so he saw the play and and read it and uh, wrote this article and said that indeed his first response was that, okay, that his work had been stolen. Uh, But then as the more he thinks about it, the less angry he becomes because he says, well, you know, actually this person did something different with my work. Uh, they weren't trying to write another New Yorker-style article like I did. They were embedding this work uh, 
my words into a completely different sort of piece of writing and thus kind of changing their meaning. And he later goes on to say that, you know, he actually thought it was a pretty good play. And so in the end loses uh, that anger and uh, starts thinking instead that the question is not so much who owns a certain word or a certain idea, uh, but how can we operate in something closer to a kind of gift economy where um, we can, hopefully with openness and gratitude, borrow things from one another and, and build upon it. So it's just, you know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell seems to me both an incredibly smart and incredibly generous person, and it was an interesting case study um, in uh you know, issues that I, I'm, I'm very much interested in as a writing teacher. All right, let's, um, I kind of want to end with this. I don't know if this is a quibble or maybe just, uh, uh, I save this for the end. This is, this is smart, right? So sure. Yeah. I don't know if this is a quibble or maybe just advice for my own writing. I did notice in the, I think it was the last chapter, um, Mm -hmm. maybe in re remixing, I, I noticed more so than in the other chapters, and I'm wondering if this is because this was added to the second edition. I did note a lot more use of the word indeed in the beginning of sentences. <laughs> uh, and it kind of struck me only because I'd, you know, I'd read it the whole book and then I noticed, oh, he's using indeed a lot at the beginning of sentences more hmm. so than he did before. And I notice it sometimes in academic work as well. And I think it looks okay, but is is it? And I don't I don't I don't necessarily have a problem with it, but is there? What do you think about the word "indeed"? I know that's kind of a strange question. <laughs> you 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 you've driven a stake through my heart here, Jonathan. I, I have to well, I gave you a lot of flattery in the beginning, so we have to balance it out. No, I I think. Um, Indeed can be a kind of academic tick, and I am not immune to them, and I will have to take a, another look at that, that chapter and see whether I you know, couldn't have been a little more vigilant uh, in editing it. When, when I do go over uh, my own prose, uh, those are the things I look for. Um, you know, and I think actually you know, the undergraduates I work with often go over their writing and say, oh, how can I make this sound, you know, kind of fancier and more academic and more scholarly? Um, And I usually have to try to work the other way, to lose a couple of indeeds or howevers or, you know, uh, whatevers. Uh, So, and it seems like I missed a couple that time around. So I'll own that, but wait for the third edition. Okay. (laughs) I was just, yeah, it might be worth it to look. I'm just curious because I was wondering if it was like, oh, because now it's the end of the book. So I can talk about indeed of all the things I had said before. Indeed, I agree with what I, and indeed, this is what I think. Um. If only I could claim that, but no, <laughs> that was completely a, a an unintended uh, slip there. So uh, I'll take a look at it. And but it also, 
you know, unfortunately sounds like me. It sounds like the kind of thing, if I'm not being careful, indeed, I might say too often. <laughs> All right. Well, the book is Rewriting How to Do Things with Texts. Um, uh, Dr. Harris is extremely uh, modest, but this book has been used all over the country and all over the world to teach writers all over the world. So I think anyone should read this book, uh, whether, you know, junior high school, high school, college, I think for any level, this is an extremely useful book and it's really changed the way that I think about writing. So uh, anything, anything else to add? Uh, I'm just so happy that you enjoyed the book and that we had the chance to talk together about it. And I would, um, if anyone stumbles upon this and would like to read the book and email or talk to me about it, I'd be delighted to be in conversation with them too. All right. So maybe after we uh, end the recording, I'll, I'll talk to you. We'll put some uh, some links on the show notes for people if they'd like Great. to check it out. All right. So, uh, Dr. Joseph Harris, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.